Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino continues our series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, today looking at the prophet Joel. And now, here's Carrie. Thank you for that wonderful opening. Let's open in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all honor and praise. Help us to love as you do and to act wisely so that others will be drawn to your salvation and your hope. May we build each other up and encourage each other today as we give you all the glory. Gracious Father, thank you for this invitation to be transformed in your presence, your heart, your mind and soul. In Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that don't know what a minor prophet is, this is not what a minor prophet is. Okay. We're continuing with our series on the minor prophets. And with our theme, Grace and the Gift of Hope. We don't have time to read the whole book of Joel, but you may want to open your Bibles to Joel and follow along if you can. Joel wrote the second book of the Minor Prophets. Little is known about him, except that he was Petula's son. And that's the only time Petula, Petula is named in the Bible. So we don't know anything about his dad. There are seven words that we often hear with a sigh of hopelessness. And resignation, or with a cry of anguished grief. We hear them in hospital rooms, in deep conversations with friends, in times of calamity and adversity. The seven words expressing loneliness of suffering are, I just don't know where to turn. Sometimes physical sufferings brings us to the place where we do not know where to turn. Emotional pain can be just as unbearable. Failures, broken relationships, anxiety, and fear can paint us into a lonely corner. For many people, times when we don't know where to turn exposes that we have been living life on two separate tracks that seldom meet. One track is our relationship with God that often lacks vitality and power because of neglect or willful independence. On the other track is the reality of daily life with its mixture of routines, pressure, and busyness pursued with little thought of God. And sometimes this track gets littered with disappointments, frustrations, and conflicts. In times like these, a vital connection is made between what is happening around us or to us and our supreme need for God. When I don't know where to turn, return to the Lord. That is the central theme of the prophet Joel. As with many of the other Old Testament prophets, Joel spoke to his people at a moment of crisis. 
The immediate crisis was an extraordinary severe locust plague combined with drought, which destroyed most of the crops on which the food supply depended. It was so serious that it affected the harvest for more than one year. The very survival of God's people in Jerusalem and Judah was in question. In the locust invasion, Joel saw an even greater danger, the approach of the day of the Lord, when God would lead a fearsome army, fearsome army in judgment on his wayward people. They remained outwardly religious, but their hearts had strayed from them. Joel spoke to wake up his people so that they would realize the grave danger in which they were living. Then he urged them to come before the Lord sincerely to return to the Lord with all their hearts and to pray that the Lord would spare them. Finally, Joel spoke God's words of encouragement to his threatened but now repentant people. The book of Joel begins with a simple title like so many other prophetic books. The word of the Lord came to Joel. And it came not merely to communicate information, but as a word of power, an agent to accomplish the purpose of God in difficult times. The word came to Joel, but was not to stop there. It was a word for Joel's generation and beyond. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. This was to accomplish God's purpose long after Joel had left the scene. This is the quality of all of God's word given to us in the Bible. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in what righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But seldom is it so explicit as in the opening verses of Joel. Joel begins his communication of the Lord's word with an impassionate call to attention. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Joel's main burden was not to have the people pass on the report of a locust infection, infestation. It was primarily what the locust plague exposed about the people's relationship to God. They had drifted from him. They were ill-prepared to face the crisis. The significance of this extraordinary event is developed in the rest of the word of the Lord to Joel. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord, your God, and cry out to the Lord. The prophet identifies a current predicament as deserving the full attention of the whole community. Even though the danger should be obvious, he has called some people to wake up. He urges the religious and the civil leaders to gather the people to cry out, 
to God as a united body. So what do we need to ask God to heal, to change, or to transform? Should we be praying for the hungry, the homeless, the addicted, the men, women, and child prostitutes? Lamentation is not an end in itself. It's a call to prayer and action in the very problems that confront us. The urgency of Joel's appeals throughout verses 2, chapter 2, sorry, verses 2 to 14 are based not only on the severe locust plague, but more on the perception that the agricultural devastation was a forerunner and foretaste of the day of the Lord, which Joel identifies <coughs> as near. Joel contains more references to the day of the Lord than any other book in the Bible. Just as the locust plague was a foretaste of the day of the Lord for Judah, so too the serve as a little day of the Lord for us. <clears throat> We're reminded that there will be an ultimate day of the Lord, a final day of judgment. And in a sense, the end of our lives will be a day of the Lord for us, an accounting of our righteousness through Christ. So praise the Lord for his grace and his hope. A call to worship or preparation for the prayer of confession might well be taken from the next section of Joel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Sound the alarm, God is coming. God alone can give us perspective on what is happening to us in our needs and what they alert us about are far greater needs to return to him. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 confronts us with the realization that it is the Lord himself who we must deal with day by day and in that ultimate day of the Lord. Our challenge is to live as if it were today. And that will change the rest of our days. There is a sense of terror before the approaching army whose identified, identified is finally confirmed in verse 11. <clears throat> the Lord thunders at the head of his army. <clears throat> his forces are beyond number and mighty. And mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Job descri Job describes God, sorry, Joel <laughs> describes God as strong, one who executes his word, carries out his commands, and is ready to fulfill previous prophecies about the day of the Lord. If this section were to stand on its own, we might take the final statement, who can endure it, simply as a rhetorical question, with the obvious answer, no one. Who can endure the day of the Lord? <clears throat> or how does one endure the day of the Lord? Today, no one can, without the one who marched into Jerusalem, purged the temple, and went to the cross. Not a different God, but I am incarnate to atone for sin so that those who repent 
and believe might live now and forever. Joel now turns from a vivid description of the threatening army in verses 12 to 17 to the response God wants from his people. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Philip Yancey writes, The prophets treat God with shocking familiarity, as if God were sitting in a chair beside them. Forgive me if this analogy seems disrespectful, but in reading the prophets, I cannot help envisioning a counselor with God as a client. The counselor gets out one stock sentence. Tell me how you really feel. And then God takes over. I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like a parent who finds a baby girl lying in a ditch near death. I take the girl home and make her my daughter. I clean her, pay for her schooling, feed her. I dote on her. I clothe her, hang jewelry on her. Then one day she runs away. I hear reports of her life of debauchery. She's a drug addict somewhere, covered with tattoos. Her body is pierced with jewelry. And when my name comes up, she curses me. I feel like she's twisting a knife in my stomach. I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like a man who falls in love with the most beautiful, sensitive woman in the world. I find her thin and wasted, abused, but I bring her home to heal her and make her beauty shine. She is the apple of my eye, and I lavish gifts and love on her. All this, and yet she forsakes me. She pants after my best friends, my enemies, anyone. She stands on a boulevard and pays people to have sex with her. Unlike a common prostitute, she doesn't even charge for her services. I feel betrayed, abandoned, jilted. And yet, Joel talks of a merciful and loving God and says to the people, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Unexpectedly, God, who assembled the invincible army against Jerusalem, breaks into the situation with an appeal for repentance. When the judgment of God is ready to break, the only escape is with God himself. The call to return to God with all our heart would be full of meaning for Joel's hearers since it has a strong place in the instruction in the book of Deuteronomy. When we turn from disobedience and return to the Lord, he changes his mind and his direction from judgment to blessing. He has given us the awesome responsibility of choice, and he takes our choices seriously. As he says in Malachi 3.7, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The word merciful 
is often combined with the word gracious in these confessions about God's character. He has often been described as having a mother's love or compassion for the helpless or the needy. In his mercy, he provides for their needs. He forgives them and he delivers them from their enemies. When people repent in the face of threatened judgment, God does not carry out the threat of harm. As our relationship with God grows through suffering, so our ability to serve others grows during these times. If we never suffer, it's difficult, if not impossible, for us to empathize with those who do. The Lord Jesus is our prime example here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When we're tempted to throw in the towel and turn from God because of disaster, it may help to look again at the Lord Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, we're reminded that not even the Son of God looked forward to suffering with delight or bore it in silence. On the cross, he cried out in anguish as he bore the sin of the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we don't know where to turn, we turn to the Lord. He does not delight in our suffering, but is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great kindness. We see these qualities of God through the pages of the Old Testament, but nowhere do we see them more clearly than in Jesus, the Son of God, and the Word of God to us. There are five questions we can think about. Would you like to have new love for people, be able to care for them deeply? Would you like to have x-ray vision, be able to see beneath the surface of people to their deepest hurts and needs and hopes? Would you like to be able to discern what God wants to say to people through you? Would you like to be able to speak the truth to them in love? And would you like to have a direct personal experience to God's spirit and become spirit-filled, a spirit-empowered person? Every Christian is called into ministry. When we care for people, God's Spirit gives us the insight about what to say and the timing for when to say it. Boldness to be honest, personal, and perceptive in helping people respond. There's a saying that people are like islands. We need to row around before we know where to land. And his spirit shows us where and how. The third chapter of Joel, as well as the book as a whole, is a reminder that our decisions matter. 
God makes a decision about our decisions. The only thing more important than our decisions is what God decides about them. The people of Joel's day faced a decision whether to heed the prophet's call to repent and return to the Lord. Our eternal destiny will be determined on the basis of our decision to accept Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives. And that decision will lead us to daily seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Every hour we make decisions on whether or not to be to others what Christ is to us. And the day, the day of the Lord, a primary theme of Joel, is mentioned in chapter 3 for the last time in this book. It's drawing near in the valley of decision, a time of judgment for the nations who have abused God's people. And the final chapter of Joel also completes the promises of restoration from chapter 2. The promises of restoration were not completely fulfilled in Joel's time, in the time of Christ and the apostles, or to this day. The vision of the heavenly city, Jerusalem, found in Revelation 20, chapter 21-22, builds on the Old Testament images of Ezekiel and Joel. The book of Revelation, like Joel, was addressed to God's people to encourage them to persevere through the difficulties that they faced. In this way, these books retain the relevance for each generation, encouraging God's people to trust in the God who holds the past, the present, and the future in his hands. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Bible That Jesus Read, writes this, Sometimes we act as if the prophets live primarily for the benefit of people not yet born like us. A most confusing aspect of the prophets is that they do not bother to tell us whether the predicted events, invasions, earthquakes, a coming leader, a recreated earth, will occur the next day, a thousand years later, or three thousand years later. Consider Joel chapter 2 which describes the devastation caused by an army of locusts. Nearly everyone assumes Joel was referring to an actual insect plague during his own time. But in the same chapter, it speaks of a time when the Spirit will be poured out on all people and the sons and daughters will prophesy. Clearly, that passage refers to a later event, the time of Pentecost. For the Apostle Paul, Peter says as much in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. When we read the prophets, 
We encounter not a distant deity, but an actual person, a God as passionate as any person that we have ever met. God feels delight and frustration and anger. He weeps and he moans with pain. Again and again, God is shocked with behavior in human beings. Idolatry, sexual orgies, child sacrifices. Behavior that God says, I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. The main message expressed by the prophets boils down to this. God loves human beings. God's cries of pain and anger are the cries of a wounded lover, distressed over our lack of response. In the prophets, God announces punishments with grief and sadness out of a broken heart. It hurts God too, just as it hurts a human parent to punish a child. A New Testament writer such as Matthew or Paul could look back and demonstrate how Jesus fulfilled the terms of the Jewish covenant and the predictions of the prophets. Even though most people in Jesus' own day failed to make the connection, Jesus' contemporaries were looking for a new King David to rule over Jerusalem. God sent instead a servant king to rule over the entire universe. The author of Hebrew stresses how the fulfillment surpassed the promise. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Beyond the images from Bethlehem to Calvary, Jesus is Supreme Lord. The Incarnation did not usher in the end of history, only the beginning of the end. Just as the tragedy of Good Friday was transformed into the triumph of Easter Sunday, one day, all war, all violence, all injustices, all sadness will be likewise transformed. Then and only then will we be able to say, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Only then, then will the urgent question from the Old Testament be resolved. Do we matter? Does God care? We must live in faith, aware that those answers will have a final answer on that decisive day when God does act, spectacularly in Jesus' second coming. Writers of the Old Testament look back at the God of the covenant who had expressed his love for his people so many times and also forward to the time when God would send a deliverer. Those of us who came later also have double vision. We look back to the first coming of Jesus and see unmistakable proof that individuals matter to God and proof that God cares. And we continue to look forward to the Creator's unfinished business 
to the as yet unfulfilled promises of the prophets. Perhaps there's still a tendency in our day to think that being a Christian should put us on a route bypassing the distresses of life. If God is only for the up, the successful, the hooray times of life, he is excluded from three-fourths of our life. Joel helps us stand at the intersection of the two tracks of life. When painful, heartbreaking things happen, where we exclaim, what can I say? We're enabled to ask a much more crucial question. What is God saying in this? There is a place to turn. Tough times are a time to return to the Lord. He has something to say to us. As the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We're not alone. Because of Jesus, we can trust God truly, that God truly understands our condition. We can trust that we matter to God and that God cares. And regardless how things look at the time, when we begin to doubt, we turn again to the face of Jesus. And there we see the compassionate love of a God well acquainted with grief. Amen. Father God, we're grateful for this time that we could spend here this morning for the reminder of the reason you came to earth and uh, the remembrance of your body that was broken and bled for us. And as we hope in the future for your return, I just pray that we would be your hands and feet in this world, spreading the the love of Jesus Christ to those who uh, we may come in contact with. Maybe go in peace and in the hope of Jesus Christ and until you return or we return again next week. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.